child-free Black people will explain how when they became child-free, it really challenged what they were taught since childhood about religion, which includes stories of Adam and Eve, this notion that biological females, then girls and women only exist because God created us for human reproduction. So that's how a lot of child-free people and child-free women in particular started challenging religion because when they decided to not have children, some of their Black family members told them, well, you are sinning. So it's perpetuating the pronatalists through religion, but also realizing that religion and race always interlock. That was an excerpt from today's interview with our guest, Dr. Kimya Dennis. She's a child-free sociologist who researches sexual and reproductive rights and freedoms, specifically as they relate to the African diaspora. We'll hear more from Dr. Dennis on this episode of the Overpopulation Podcast. Welcome to the Overpopulation Podcast, where we tirelessly make overshoot and overpopulation common knowledge. That's the first step in right-sizing the scale of our human footprint so that it is in balance with life on Earth, enabling all species to thrive. I'm Nandita Bajaj, co-host and executive director of Population Balance. And I'm Alan Ware, co-host of the podcast and researcher with Population Balance, a nonprofit that collaborates with experts and other organizations to educate about the impacts of human overpopulation and overconsumption on the planet, people, and animals. In today's episode, we'll talk with Dr. Kimia Dennis about how pronatalism impacts people within the African diaspora, including the unique challenges of being Black and child-free. Dr. Dennis will also discuss the importance of having uncomfortable conversations in the field of reproductive justice. Dr. Kimya Nuru Dennis is a community advocate, sociologist, and criminologist, educator, and researcher. Dr. Dennis connects with local, national, and international communities, schools, businesses, and organizations. As founder and CEO of 365 Diversity, Dr. Dennis helps change policies, curriculum, class materials, and other actions for K-12 schools and colleges and universities. Born and raised in the city of Richmond, Virginia, Dr. Dennis lived in North Carolina for 17 years and has lived in Baltimore, Maryland since 2019. Good morning, Kimia. We have been fascinated by your work for a number of years, and we were so excited to see you most recently in the film, My So-Called Selfish Life, which, as you know, is a film about pronatalism and the child-free choice. So we are actually thrilled that we can have you here in the studio to have a conversation about your own journey being a child-free person. Thank you so much. Thank you. I look forward to this discussion. Great. Well, Kimia, let's get started with your most recent research that you've been delving into, which is the research on the Black child-free diaspora in countries around the world that you've been conducting. Can you tell us more about how you became interested in this research? Yes. So I started the research around 2011, 2012 is when I first <laughs> initiated this idea I always knew I did not want children, but when I decided that I was just never going to have children and I started looking around, what are some sources for me to read, to learn more? And I'm also a sociologist and criminologist. So I looked at this sociologically. And of course, it was not shocking that the most published books and journal articles are white women. Mm -hmm. And most of the samples in these studies, including when you're looking at qualitative, mostly white women. And this includes if it's trying to expand internationally. So most books, also white women. Hmm. When you go to the sites, the chat spaces, the message boards, it's mostly white people. And when you go to these sources and bring up Black child-free people around the world, Asian child-free people around the world, indigenous, aboriginal, non-white Hispanic, non-white Latinx, Latin A, Latin O around the world. A lot of times the white child-free people get outraged because they say this has nothing to do with race. Hmm. And then you get exhausted because we don't have to explain the same way child-free has to do with gender variance. It has to do with sexuality variance, age variance, socioeconomic variance, religious variance, nation variance. These are all topics always discussed in these groups. 
but mysteriously they wanted to not have anything to do with race. Like they might even mention ethnicity, but they won't mention various ethnicities for thousands of years that became interlocked in racial categories. It's the moment you bring up race, which is unfortunately very common, which is the problem and the origins of racism in the first place. Hmm. So that's where I had to just speak out. And I stopped associating with any of these mainstream child-free sources. And I just had to explain, I appreciate the child-free authors and child-free sociologists who helped my research. But when I first started this research, it was because I'm not the only Black child-free person around the world who was noticing that these places do not specifically address racial variance. And Kimia, why do you think that is? Why was this one aspect being so apparently intentfully left out? It's the same reason as as most aspects of our lives that are falsely presented as race neutral and race objective. So this is what sociologists term colorblind racism. And it's when we're talking about education, income, religion, White people in particular tend to dominate these conversations, despite the world being about 12% white around the world. White people tend to dominate. And that includes when you look in libraries, school curriculum, K through 12 and colleges, universities, and people are learning. But instead of learning about how there's gender variance, sexuality variance, and race variance, a lot of times white people in particular who create academic programs, medical programs, they tend to want to leave the racial variants out. So then and we're talking about the decision to never have children. It's the same routine over and over again. I can have entire books on my bookshelf and there's rarely a black person. And of course, what people will say is that we could not find a black person who can be a respondent for our study. So when I started this research, it really solidified not only my decision to never have children and how I respond to family and friends back then, before I was in my 40s, when they used to question me, I just realized very early on that I don't care about their opinions. So that's why I don't argue. I always tell people, (laughs) they're like, do you argue with people? No. Why not? Because I don't care about their opinions. All right. Like, you know, if you don't care about their opinions, then they can feel whatever they feel. Just tell them to go on about their day. So when doing starting this child-free Black research, and having the wonderful child-free scholars and authors help to advertise the research and get more people to participate. Seeing the responses from some white child-free people saying, this has nothing to do with race. It's racist to make it about race. And wow. that's not what racism means, of course. But that just really confirmed that if the child-free groups do that, hmm. it's the same as a lot of pronatalists groups do as well. When we talk about parenting, people expect you not to bring up racial variants in parenting mm-hmm. and corporal punishment, right? Right. And if that's happening all around the world, of course, that's going to shape the medical and health professions. Mm-hmm. That shapes access to gynecologists. That shapes access to birth controls. And if we choose to get sterilized, that shapes all of it. There's no such thing as racial objectivity and racial neutrality. Mm-hmm. Anywhere around the world, even when they claim they don't have racial categories, they do because they know how to behave when they're in spaces in which they're expected to fit into a certain category. Right. And so that's why this really shapes me personally and also me as a sociologist and criminologist, because it's very common for nearly every child-free online space. And if you go to meet up and join child-free groups, Mm -hmm. it's almost impossible to find child-free groups in which Indigenous people, East Indians, Black people, the list goes on come into these spaces and realize they will not be the only person. (laughs) Right. So sometimes we have more and more, you know, indigenous and black child-free groups, but that's still very rare. And then when people's lives get complex, they leave these groups and these groups go away. But the white child-free groups, they tend to very much remain very active because that's based on population representation in some nations as well. What are some of the main takeaways from that research of the Black diaspora, child-free? Yes. So when doing this research, we find that more child-free Black people in parts of the world really want a collective that focuses on child-free Black people. So we can discuss how race also contributes to religious standpoints. Mm. So this was also a platform in which I met quite a few Black agnostics and Black atheists Mm. because race always connects with 
religions, spiritualities, when you look at the, of course, histories of the more common religions in parts of the world, such as Christianity and Judaism and Islam, and then also how health ties into this. So I created and taught the child-free course. So although I have not published the research for peer-reviewed journals, I did not do that because I realized that most of the people who actually need this research are not going to read peer-reviewed publications. Right. You always have to explain this as an academic. Peer-reviewed publications tend not to be for the general public to access and learn. Most of our colleagues never read it. Mm -hmm. They congratulate you based on the cover letter. So it's really to build up your CV and all that stuff and to build up grant funding for research. So that's why the work that I do, I try to give it to the general population. And so a lot of child-free Black people will explain how when they became child-free, it really challenged what they were taught since childhood about religion, which includes stories of Adam and Eve, this notion that biological females, then girls and women only exist because God created us for human reproduction. Right. So that's how a lot of child-free people and child-free women in particular started challenging religion, because when they decided to not have children, some of their Black family members told them, well, you are sinning. Mm -hmm. So it's perpetuating the pronatalist through religion, but also realizing that religion and race always interlock. Mm -hmm. Historically, in terms of how we were forced different forms of religion through colonialism, Christian missionaries and transatlantic slavery, and then what it means when people try to learn some of the original forms of religions, but the original forms are almost impossible to find over thousands of years, right? Yeah, yes, right. So people hold on to this pronatalist notion that, you know, it's a very traditional conservative notion of gender and also race that ties into that and social class, this idea that owning property is only about owning a family and a family has to have children. Exactly. So that's a common thing. And then mental health comes into that as well. And I'd love to hear more on that too, but I wanted to add a quick comment about the differences of experiences of people from different races and cultures. Uh, and religion is an interesting one, because if you look at some of the child-free spaces in the West, for example, especially if they are more liberal women who are following a child-free path, the reasons for being child-free are very different, or the experience of being child-free is very different from someone like you who has a lot of other layers mm -hmm. uh, attached to you, or someone like me coming from a very pronatalist culture and ethnicity. They're just different experiences. They're not superior or inferior, but I'm highlighting how there's a layer of expectation or guilt attached to traditional aspects of being child-free. As you said, you're sinning if it's religiously motivated or you are letting your family down, which may not be equivalent to a more liberal family in the West. Some of the reasons are, well, you may not find fulfillment because so much is attached to individuality rather than yep. groupings that exist in traditional cultures like ours. Yeah. So if I can speak on that, that's a very European white foundation. When we talk about the core of individualism in which white people in particular pretend to hold on to the individualism while also celebrating forms of human capital, social capital, cultural capital, right? Mm -hmm. Forms of capital are impossible if your life is based on individualism, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, even when we talk about how this land on Western Hemisphere was stolen, it's supposed to be anti-British, but British was really brought here. I mean, it's still here in, in terms of everything about the forms of morality, the forms of the laws, the court system, the legal system, how pronatalism is shaped. And so we always have to explain that this falsehood of individualism, and then of course we talk about the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, it's all into this notion of working hard and you'll get your reward. And it pretends that it's all you despite the networking components. Mm -hmm. And so I always explain this in child-free spaces that are actually open to these discussions because even child-free agnostics and atheists and Hindus and Muslims and Jews need to understand how the Protestant ethic is, of course, based in Protestantism, but it's still taught to people. Mm -hmm. And that's why when we talk about learned behavior, learned behavior does not always fit in categories. 
And a lot of times people think they're challenging the category by becoming child free. But then when you read their writings or listen to what they're saying, they're challenging pronatalism by not having children, but they're conforming to traditional cisgender heterosexual gender norms, such mm-hmm. as men have had a household. Women need to be the main cleaners or something to that effect. And how they'll rationalize it is by saying, well, this is my personal choice, as if it's hmm. they have that selective vision that it's not fitting in line with thousands of years of certain cultures. Right. And so that's why I always tell people that child-free people are actually, we're counter to some components, but whenever you meet child-free people who pretend that they're just anti-establishment, they're countering <laughs> everything, they're dismantling the establishment. It's falsehood, just like when you hear atheists say the same thing, and then they pick up their tea with their pinky hanging out. And like, you know, you're still doing learned behavior. <laughs> right. You're still complying, whether you're anti-fascist, whatever you are, you're still complying to learned behaviors in some way. Because humans, we're learned behavior since birth. Most things we do are not biological. And most things that are always considered biological are not. They're just Hmm. considered biological because humans want to understand things that they can't explain quickly. And so the same thing when we're talking about child-free collectives, there's a lot of divide because there's a group that thinks that they are the know-it-alls and the representatives of child-free. And then when different cultures and identities of people come in, the cultures and identities of people who are new are expected to assimilate and comply. Hmm. And that's unfortunately what's represented. So when I created and taught the Child Free course, my students from different cultures and identities were actually excited. Is that the oldest traditional women's college in the nation? And so some of the students already had children. Right. Some of the students plan to have children. What they appreciated was shaping it into their choice and no longer feeling forced when they're around their children who already exist. Wow. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Just by deviating from one prescribed choice that is considered our default path to fulfillment or getting closer to God or whatever the motivation of that choice is. It's only one choice that you're deviating from. You're not really dismantling the entire system by choosing this one choice. I still think it's a revolutionary choice for people to be making because our reproductive capacity has been so bound up with our identity that choosing not to procreate is, I think, a pretty big deal. But we have to remember that we are still tied up in a lot of the other shoulds. And we have to continue to dismantle these ideas. These learned behaviors are still very much guiding us. And in fact, what reminded me of learned behaviors was um, this conversation with Orna Donath, also a sociologist in Israel, who talks about our emotions being learned as well. So we have been taught from a very young age what we must feel excited about, what we must regret. And even our emotions are so deeply socialized and mediated that we can't really separate our authentic desires and experiences and feelings from the mediated ones. So because we only see procreation and pregnancy always being celebrated in culture, we have been socialized from a young age to only look at that as a positive, happy experience. Meanwhile, there are a lot of people who are quite miserable and have had very difficult experiences of suffering and confusion and mental health issues through procreation, which hardly ever get depicted in culture. Um, So there is a lot of manipulation that goes on in terms of dictating, not just what we should and shouldn't do, but how we should and shouldn't feel. And that's when we talk about, of course, the social psychology that interlocks sociology with psychology to understand how this is shaping everything. So when we talk about people's negative emotions, since I also specialize in mental health, it's important because a lot of child-free people have a mental health condition. And so one explanation for why they're not having children is they think it is completely selfish and disrespectful to pass mental illnesses and other illnesses from generation to generation. Hmm. Because... Every family has health conditions on both sides of the family. 
And of course, most families do not know health conditions because most people don't go to the doctors. Mm -hmm. And, you know, doctors have existed for hundreds of thousands of years around the world in different forms. But still, most people don't keep up with medical records. Right. And people who do, a lot of them still reproduce, whether it's unplanned pregnancy or not. And they'll just say, well, love surpasses everything. Yeah. And that's where a lot of child-free people and, and child-free Black people in our groups that we still keep in touch with will express that. They'll say, we can say that positive energy, prayer, whatever can keep up with stuff. But when your child gets the schizophrenia that you have already and your child's schizophrenia starts to express as the child gets older, you really can't blame anyone but yourself because you literally knew that you were on medication, you had to get off the medication while you were pregnant, and the list goes on. And so that's why that's another component of pronatalism, because never do we ever tell people with health conditions that they should not have children, Mm -hmm. right? Because that is ableist to take that approach. Mm -hmm. But instead, we want people to understand that it should be a choice. Mm -hmm. You should have the choice to have children, because it's not that people with health conditions should not have children. Instead, it should be a choice. You should not be told, well, you have a health condition, you're going to die. Therefore, you need to reproduce so that, you know, you create the world's next population generation. Right. That's another form of pronatalism in which it's not based on what the person wants. It's instead telling the person you're going to die before you get 50. Therefore, time to pop it out. Yeah. That's a very harmful, dangerous component for people to think about, even if they talk about love. Yeah. Right. This falsehood that love is instant. It's automatic. They choose selective vision when we have literally centuries of writings of girls and women who talk about how they felt when they've been pregnant, Mm -hmm. how they felt, whether you can call it postpartum depression, whatever the official medical terminology is, there's many stories of people being absolutely miserable Mm -hmm. and very alone because boys and men in in many cultures are told that this is your part-time job. Yeah. (laughs) It's her full-time job, right? And so that's why this is always something that we have to address. But you just mentioned men and wondering how much patriarchy and male domination is tied up with the relative powerlessness of women in these situations and what you saw in your research of the Black diaspora. Well, thank you. And so I'll also bring that up historically in terms of African cultures around the world for hundreds of thousands of years, some of which are matriarchal. But people need to define matriarchy because a lot of times they'll define matriarchy the same way they define the black woman as the head of household. Usually when they say black woman is head of household, it's still very motherly nurture role. So she's taking every power, but it's not in the sense of independence. It's in the sense of your whole existence is based on these children and your extended family, what's happening in the household. Everything is based on you. And you're oftentimes risking your own health and life because you're not taking care of yourself. So that was also something captured in the research because it was this notion of challenging how most of our people don't know as much as we should about African cultures from the continent of Africa because, of course, transatlantic slavery and missionary and colonialism that put us around the world and and took us from our family on the continent of Africa. So being child-free and doing this research actually took us around the world to find African women who are interested in resources and addressing how in their nation, while, while there've been hundreds of thousands of years of birth control options, contrary to what people oftentimes say in Europe, Canada, and United States of America, that somehow birth control was only created here. Mm-hmm. We have hundreds of thousands of years of humans with different birth control options that people still use. But that's just something I was interested about this research where African women who, for example, live in Europe will tell you that this is the difficulty. They might feel a sense of freedom when they're in Europe, but when they go home to visit their family, they're still told you're not living how you should live. So that's unfortunately been an example of how some women have had to separate from their families and from their traditional cultures and traditional nations and their original origins regarding religions and spiritualities as well. So on one end, we can say that's a form of confidence and independence, but it's very lonely. It's very isolating. Sure. And it also increases the prevalence of white child free because if you have to abandon your 
African cultural origins, what tends to happen is you end up in nations like Europe, Canada, and United States of America, where now you're forming collectives with predominantly white child-free spaces. Right. So it's like, so a lot of, some people feel guilty because they feel like they're abandoning their culture and trying to be in white child-free spaces because these are the spaces that were the only spaces that would accept them, unlike their, their family. And regarding the gender variance, I was not surprised when it was difficult and still is difficult to find child-free Black men, whether it's locally, nationally, or around the world. Mm-hmm. So although I interviewed a few child-free Black men, and for our Facebook group, we have some child-free Black men who are really excited to be part of this. And they always explain constantly, because they're the ones who oftentimes have to explain as well, that they really are child-free. Because although women are told, you'll change your mind or you'll accidentally get pregnant, which is also a very cisgender, heterosexual standpoint. Mm-hmm. But child-free Black men will tell you that they oftentimes are assumed to change their mind because it's, it's this notion that their decisions are 100% based on what their mother tells them to do and what whatever woman they find at any, any given moment decides. So that's why when I did the research years ago, time really does fly, some of the child-free Black men, I had to take them out of that category and put them childless. And they're in the appendix. Hmm. They're taught that boys and men just show up. And like you'd mentioned, having the kid, their commitment's part-time yep. and the mother's full-time. Yep. And I was disappointed. I was not shocked, but I was disappointed that it just complied with that. Yeah, and that's why it seems women making the choice of child-free, they're seeing the full-timeness of it and making that choice. And men are more, well, it's a part-time job, (laughs) you know, that they can make it that lower element in their life, Mm -hmm. make the decision more cavalierly, maybe. Yeah, and some of them do. Even if they're challenging their family and their culture, it's still oftentimes families and cultures that are based in patriarchy and You know, you can be annoyed with a man, but it's up to the man either way. Hmm. And so we can also talk about that when men decide to get sterilized by choice and how it tends to be an easier process for them. And so it's the same thing that just goes on and on and on to let boys and men believe that they can just make whatever decision they want and it's not going to be difficult. Yeah, we had interviewed uh, Escar Guarin, who's a vasectomy doctor, who mentioned that, yeah, six times as many tubal ligations are performed as vasectomies, even though vasectomy is a minor operation. Right. And I want to also pick up a comment that you made, Kimia, about women in various different African countries who are making the decision to be child-free. On the one hand, they are defying deep-rooted cultural norms to make that choice, which is incredibly difficult, especially when you add the components of them having to depart from a lot of their other identities that are a big part of who they are, such as their spirituality, their religion, their traditions, because those layers of their identity will not accept their choice to become child-free. So on the one hand, they are trying to re-identify themselves as liberated, authentic, child-free people. On the other hand, the edge of what they were trying to prove is getting lost because their other identities are, in a way, forcibly being taken away from them, but just because of a lack of acceptance of that choice. Yeah, humans are very much again, based on learned behavior and also very categorical. Right. I mean, we talk about categorical distinctions, categorical inequalities. And I always tell people when you think you're different, now you fit into another category. There's no such thing as independence and individualism in the sense that you never fit into any category. Right. Um, And sometimes people think that they are, you know, anti-everything, but I tell them, well, now you're part of the club that's (laughs) (laughs) anti-everything. Yes. All right. That's how humans operate. There's no such thing otherwise. So when we're talking about studying this and and we're looking at like anti-natalist societies, it's very difficult to find much data on anti-natalist societies. There's no real evidence of anti-natalism on the continent of Africa and also on these lands before they became continents. Because, you know, most data and most 
contrary to what a lot of people are taught since preschool, there are hundreds of thousands of years of research and teachings. I always have to explain this to people because unfortunately, a lot of people are taught in history books and classes, including in PhD programs and MD programs, that humans were just roaming around the world for hundreds of thousands of years, but we know nothing until about five centuries ago. Right. That's the mystery, right? That's not true. <laughs> yes. Unfortunately, a lot of knowledges have been lost as lands have shifted, natural disasters, humans are huge litterers for hundreds of thousands of years, get rid of stuff. A lot of knowledge is stolen. You'll find it in museums. You'll find it at predominantly white universities around the world. They'll call it their collection of knowledge, which means that the general population does not have access to that knowledge. And unfortunately, that also shapes when we're talking about reproductive rights and pronatalism or antinatalism. A lot of people's knowledge of anything is based on what they can find at a library, at mm. a bookstore, in a classroom. Right. Or on a standardized test, because that standardized test is supposed to tell them these are the facts of the world for hundreds of thousands of years. And that's false, but people still hold on to that. And unfortunately, school decision makers perpetuate it for every generation. So that connects when we're talking about things like body health courses, Titan courses. Mm. We're talking about sexual health, reproductive health. They're literally teaching, like even when we include knowing LGBTQIA, it's still very much a pronatalism thing because if you're learning about different forms of sexuality and gender identities and non-identities and asexuality, it's still oftentimes teaching people that you have to prove that you are a human and not an alien. Maybe you should go start babysitting as a hobby. Maybe you should go... <laughs> adopt a child or something. In other words, it's, so it's still the life script of teaching you what it means to be a normal human, quote unquote, and then you have to prove you're not an alien life form. Yes. By doing something, you know, go to a playground, but not in a creepy way, but just like tell the children you love them, right? <laughs> right. And that's because again, most people, and this includes most people who are specializing in anthropology and other forms of sciences, they don't know anything about what humans have done for hundreds of thousands of years, including birth controls and everything and abortion. And they really go based on this new creation by Europeans. And like when we talk about reproductive rights, people insist on talking about white women's form of feminism, women's suffrage, women's liberation, like literally women in East India, Middle East weren't doing this stuff hmm. for hundreds of thousands of years. And it's really insulting, including when we're talking about child-free spaces, because you know, people are taking pride that they're making their own personal decision, but they need to also think about how they're contributing to what future generations will have access to do for themselves as well. Right. And not pretend that this stuff really just started. So this is why right. I just hold people accountable. You can't just have one title and declare yourself equity for everyone forever. Right. You have to really do more than that. And when you're held accountable for inconsistency and inadequacy, you can't be mad. Because anger is 100% because people have never been told to self-reflect. Hmm. They've been told to blame a political party or a politician. I always tell people, look inward and say, it can't always be everyone else. What can we do to make these changes and to understand how the changes shape literally, locally, nationally, and around the world as well? It's a never-ending journey of dismantling our deeply rooted psychological structures, isn't it? A lot of the work really has to happen from within. And that takes a lot of effort and self-knowledge. And this happens a lot when people are debating abortion and pro-choice and the, I don't call them pro-life, but I call them anti-life. Yeah. When that issue happens in child-free spaces, uh, there are child-free spaces that say you can't be child-free and against abortion. And I agree with that in a sense, right? But I also want child-free people in certain nations to be able to have this discussion in a very culturally conscious and culturally inclusive way. Hmm. Because although I am pro-choice, I'm pro-abortion, meaning literally I believe in having access and safe access. I also want it to be based though in understanding thousands of years of different forms of birth control and abortion. Mm -hmm. So this is where when we're talking about child-free and dismantling pronatalism, it has to be from a world standpoint. Even before these racial categories were created five centuries ago for the purpose of 
colonialism and trade and capitalism. We have to understand the origins of this to understand how people's bodies have changed over thousands of years. Reproductive choices have changed. They vary around the world. And so I want child-free spaces to instead making a a battle against pro-abortion, anti-abortion. I want more spaces around the world to understand how even abortion has different meanings around cultures. And instead of people being holier than thou, like they have discovered the solution, they need to say, okay, I think that my approach is correct when talking about safe abortion access, but I want to learn about what your culture has done for thousands of years so that we can present this not in a scary way Mm -hmm. based on catchphrases and hashtags on the internet, but instead based on a learning and understanding way. So we're not forcing like European white capitalist nation standards on everyone and saying, we're the only way to be true humans. The rest of you are controlled by your government. So, you know, the list goes on, right? That does not work. That is only like the same thing as giving people an ally award. That's to build people's confidence. It's not an equity approach. Yeah. An equity approach is when you go around and you say, you know what? None of us are know-it-alls. Most of us only know what's happening in our nation. Most of you don't even know what's happening in their nation. They know what's happening in their family, mm-hmm. sometimes not even in their own neighborhood. Right. You know, a lot of people are choosing to go child-free for a variety of reasons. It could be for concern for their prospective children. It could be based on health issues, mental health issues, physical health issues that they don't ethically want to foist upon their children. It could be purely personal to have more time to do things that you love doing. It could be for selfless reasons. It could be for selfish reasons, just like having children could be for selfless reasons or selfish reasons or a spectrum of anything in between. And I appreciate going into this nuance. You know, there are a lot of different experiences and there are a lot of different reasons for why people make decisions about procreation or non-procreation. And the other thing is there's this assumption that if you are challenging pronatalism, you are automatically advocating for antinatalism. There's an entire spectrum in between the two choices, pronatalism versus antinatalism, that gets left out. It gets reduced to another binary form of thinking. Child-free people who are challenging pronatalism are not all, some are, but not all anti-creation. In fact, antinatalism has its own worldview that it abides by, which is, you know, to exist is to suffer and that human life is filled with suffering. Therefore, we shouldn't put that on anyone else. That's not what everyone believes, but you could really revere the life that you've been given. You can look at the planet from a place of reverence rather than a place of suffering. They're both worldviews that are pushing a certain value system on society rather than allowing people the in-between gray space of making decisions through informed, responsible thought. Yeah, and thank you for saying that, because I agree. And that's another example, though, of it being very economic-based. It's oftentimes when we talk about pronatalism and then the extent of antinatalism, even when people are financially struggling, and that's their explanation for being child-free, they tend to still be using a very middle to upper economic standpoint regarding antinatalism, because it's, again, based on this notion that either everyone cannot have sex, and that includes non-consensual and rape, right? And it's based on the assumption that everyone can have access to birth control if they do have sex. Mm. So, And you'll oftentimes hear even very lower income people have adopted that middle upper class standpoint because that's what the education system is based in. The education system is not created for by poor people and that's around the world, right? And it's also still very European white-based because they use a European, Canadian, and United States of America standpoint, which is also how birth control access and health access are distributed around the world in a way that erases thousands of years of approaches and instead say this European approach created by men as well, is going to be the standard for reproductive choices. So that's something also I want people to think about when they're talking about pronatalism and antinatalism, because most antinatalists, including 
if there are people within our cultures, East Indian, Asian, Middle Eastern, Black, Indigenous, mm-hmm. they tend to adopt a very European standpoint of saying, well, people just need to stop reproducing yeah, without thinking how that has different meanings around the world, also different economic meanings. And they also have to think about our nations that are predominantly white intentionally do tax breaks for people with certain size of families, and they do tax incentives when people are not reproducing, particularly when white people, white middle class, do not reproduce. Yeah. That's something that's not expressed outward. They'll use code language mm-hmm. so that we don't understand the meaning, but that's what it means when they do demographic breakdown and they see that we have high mortality, but we have this lower birth rate. Right. And they know it's not because of health issues. It's because people are now making economic decisions. That's when politicians step in and they say, now we need to help these families. They pretend they're helping families, but they're really encouraging people to keep reproducing and not just people in general, but particularly white people and middle-class people, because remember the tax breaks are based on economic level yeah. that is proportionally impacting white people in certain nations. So that's the list that goes on and on. So people have to remember whether you're pro-natalism or anti-natalism that connects with everything, including economic system, everything about the political standpoints medical services, and the schools. That's how schools are shaped. Because if reproduction is decreasing, the schools are like, okay, we have fewer students. How are we going to keep these school systems going? So that's how the school decision makers, they'll deny it every day, but the school decision makers are hanging out with politicians. Right. When you criticize the accreditation and the curriculum, school decision makers will say, well, the, the blame is on the politicians. The blame's on all of them. Yeah. Because they're literally all doing this together because they're protecting each other's careers and salaries, right? So that's where child-free people have to understand that our decisions, we have to understand the full scope of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Well, I was going to mention that you had left academia to start your own consultancy and that you'd moved into not diversity, equity, and inclusion, but equity and justice. You make a point of saying you want to have challenging conversations, not just easy to to take and forget type conversations. So I'm wondering what your experience has been with that and how people are prepared to listen. Well, thank you. So yes, I left full-time academia two years after reaching tenured associate professor, and I had created an academic program done the curriculum thing, done annual program assessments. I always explain that because when people pretend that you can't change schools, schools did not get created out of the moon. (laughs) They did not become horrible because alien life forms, it's people. (laughs) Therefore, they can be changed every day. And so when I left full-time academia, that's when I left North Carolina and moved to Baltimore, Maryland. And I I do part-time work. I do part-time academia as well. And I also have the business in which I do results-based work. So I do trainings for medical and health students, medical and health professionals. I do get work done workshops where we're actually changing policies. So you can't send your employees to me who are not the decision makers because now you've just wasted time and their time because they thought they were going to take some notes and bring it to you and and you say no. (laughs) So the work I do is not, I don't believe in bias trainings. I don't believe in anti-bias trainings. I don't believe in assessments in which you take like a survey to determine your beliefs regarding race, gender, religion. I consider those a waste of time. Black people and indigenous people have done racial justice work for five centuries. Black people in particular have done racial justice trainings for white people since the 1960s. Even before we were getting paid for that, (laughs) we've created and taught racial justice courses for generations. A lot of times students will be mad. A lot of times students want to only learn about, like they want you to talk about white power, white quote unquote supremacy, but they don't want to learn the origins of their own racial identity. So that's another problem when talking about the issue of racism as well. And so, so with the work that I do, it's beyond talking. I tell people by the time you get to me, we're not going to define stuff. Right. Like you're not going to come to my conferences and presentations and my trainings And I'll say, first, let's define racism. First, let's define transphobia. I tell you the moment you contact me and hire me that this is what you all have to accomplish. Fight it out with each other, whatever. 
But by the time you get to me, we're actually changing the curriculum. Hmm. We're actually changing the policies and playing the annual assessments part. And a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of people declare themselves DEI experts, anti-racism experts, bias experts, because they want to build profit and become wealthy. Mm -hmm. I tell people, if you're wealthy as an equity expert, that means you're not doing equity work. (laughs) They're not. I mean, the people, the decision makers, the power majority are not going to make you wealthy if you're really changing the power structure. Right. Yeah. Right. Like if you're talking about anti-capitalism and to increase wealth access without exploiting labor, because that's what capitalism is, right? If you're talking about showing people how to do equity line of credits and other resources to build wealth without pretending you've got to oppress people, capitalists are not going to pay you to teach that. Right. (laughs) You're dismantling their capitalism, right? Things do not have to be required by policies and laws. Mm -hmm. Same thing when talking about COVID-19. People who are foolish enough to care that their governor is going to say, hey, you don't have to wear masks, don't understand medical and health inequities. Right. You don't understand five centuries specifically of medical racism, scientific racism, thousands of years of medical and health sexism in which our sicknesses, our deaths did not matter. They were just crunched into data and turned into data reports and research publications. Politicians don't care about minoritized people's health. So I tell people, do not go based on what the governor says. If they say you don't have to wear a mask anymore, that means you got to buy some more N95 masks. Mm -hmm. If they're looking at economic shifts, they're not looking at whether indigenous people are disproportionately dying. Mm -hmm. Same thing with the opioid crisis. Indigenous people, black people, generations dying from opioid addiction. It did not become a crisis for the nation and conferences until middle class white people. Right. So the work that I do, I tell people. Knowing facts has to be, you have to be against news stations. News stations are not teaching you based on knowledge. Mm-hmm. They're teaching you based on like the cliff notes because they understand that you're going to be a consumer and a customer without actually reading on your own and learning stuff. Yeah. So I tell people when they get to me, they have to be ready to challenge all of that nonsense and work towards actual changes. So that must be pretty rewarding that you, you don't step into the room till they have signed on. It's rewarding for places that actually want changes. They want it to go beyond an official statement. But unfortunately, a lot of places prefer official statements and they're afraid of outraging the decision makers. Like if we're talking about changing indigenous history in the history books, a lot of times schools will tell you whether it's black history, indigenous history, They'll say, yeah, we care about your opinions, but what they really care about are the outrage of the white politicians and the white taxpayers and white voters. Right. Including in predominantly black, predominantly indigenous schools. They don't care about the voices of us. Right. It's actually predictable. So that's why I tell people by the time you get to me, you can't still be shocked by this stuff. This stuff has literally been going on for centuries on the Western Hemisphere in particular. And we've told you this. We've written proposals to schools. We've written proposals to police departments. We filed patient advocacy complaints to medical and health facilities. We've done this for a century. Mm -hmm. I want to pick up what you said just uh, about how mortality and uh, illnesses and the inequity in our health system, really, it just gets baked into demographic data and it's not really made available in a nuanced and transparent way. And I want to tie that back to pronatalism. It's not a big surprise that the two are intimately linked. So, for example, there was a recent editorial opinion in the Washington Post that said the U.S. needs more babies Of course, uh, a lot of the baby bust alarmism has been in the news for the last many years, but especially in the middle of the pandemic, because people are actually making intelligent, responsible decisions, sometimes being forced to make decisions because of economic uncertainty and public health concerns. The fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic and having a baby may not be the wisest choice for them or their child, but Interestingly, what this editorial focused on was that more people are dying from the pandemic. Life expectancy has declined, reflecting the effects of drug abuse, obesity, suicide, and other factors that are afflicting people, both young and old. But they ended off by saying, a lower national birth rate means that natural replacement is not keeping pace. So we are As a country, we are ignoring the fact that people are dying 
of illness, obesity, mental health issues, suicide, economic issues. None of that is actually being talked about. How do we invest properly in services that uplift people's individual well-being and rights? Rather, we're talking about people as commodities, babies, women, immigrants, as commodities to keep our economic engine going. We're still looking at people as numbers. And of course, that population balance, we have taken the position that pronatalism, especially the coercive kind, we've been mired in that over the last few years. A lot of countries are turning to coercive means of blocking reproductive and contraceptive services, which has been happening in BIPOC communities for centuries, but now nations are taking that on to increase their population growth. And we've taken the position is that the fact that we are overpopulated is not a coincidence. It's a result of centuries, of course, of pronatalism and reproductive injustice. And I just wanted to see if you had any thoughts on any of the stuff I've just said. So this is where I hold people accountable. As I tell people every day, and particularly, quote unquote, black and brown people, never trust a politician, never trust a political party, never trust a school decision maker. (laughs) I'm going to say it again. (laughs) Never trust a politician, never trust a political party, never trust a school decision maker. It's kind of like my rant earlier, right? (laughs) You have to understand that these people are wonderful actors in the sense that they will tell you that they don't know how something happened, they don't know why something happened, but it's not them, it's someone higher up. And it's, you know, it's like that pyramid, that formation where it's like everyone's talking about higher up and the people at the very top point in the pyramid, like the top 1%, now they're looking at alien life forms. It's like that wonderful movie, Alien versus Predator now. It's like they're (laughs) fighting each other and we're just at the bottom like, I mean, all of you probably look like it's your fault. So, but they, they keep doing this because they know that most people will comply. And we know that most people will comply when we're talking about any kind of equity work. So that's why when we're talking about whether it's anti-racism, whether it's talking about increasing reproductive rights, whether it's dismantling homophobia and transphobia, we have to just realize that even most minoritized people will not participate in the equity work because people have to go to school, they have to go to work, and they might not have the resources and sometimes not even the interests to contribute to the changes that need to be made. Right. And that's a realistic thing that I always address because unfortunately, most people, including during COVID, are all over social media falling in love with hashtags and they really think that this social justice thing is everyone's involved. And I'm like, no, you seeing millions of people doing a hashtag means nothing for their life. Mm-hmm. Like their hashtag, like school teachers to do a hashtag about like changing the books. 99% of these teachers are not changing anything. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna repeat that anything. Yeah. They're doing professional development sessions. Nothing's coming from it. They might change a book in their class, but they're not changing anything regarding the curriculum really. Like it's a special topics which means nothing. They're not holding their colleagues accountable. So even if you do have a new book in your class that's addressing facts, you're still having lunch with the horrible teachers. So like, how do you not have deal breakers now with people Mm -hmm. who are perpetuating the things that you're claiming to dismantle? So this is why I just say that whenever laws and policies are changing, we can criticize them all we want, but we have to hold people accountable for complying constantly. Right. Like I'm in Baltimore City now. So people keep expressing sadness, disappointment over what these politicians do. But I tell them politicians are literally going to do the same thing every election. Yeah. Including black politicians. We're told as black people, they tell us vote or die. All these different jargons that they tell us. They tell us vote or die because black people in particular, and this is parts of the world as well, are told to comply, we're told to take instructions, just like we were forced during transatlantic slavery, take instructions, don't challenge the people giving you instructions, keep on marching, doing that. And then when things don't go as you're promised, if you vote, or we're big taxpayers as well, don't question those people. 
Don't challenge the decision makers when Mm -hmm. they don't do what they told you they would do. Instead, now we have to become understanding that things are not quick to change. Right. We're literally told at the same time. So the fact that people act baffled and confused just illustrates how humans are a very brainwashed collective. Mm -hmm. That goes back to the categorical distinctions, right? We're just taught oftentimes throughout our lives to just be confined to socialization. And then when something's wrong with the socialization, you know that if you challenge it, you'll be by yourself. So people have to do a cost-benefit analysis. Right. Is this at the time in my life where I need to be by myself? And same thing when men talk about they're feminists and they're going to dismantle male dominance. I'm like, well, you just have to be honest with yourself because are you going to cut off these men from your lives? Mm -hmm. Mostly no. So that's why just people have to understand politicians understand that Mm -hmm. when they create legislation, they understand that people will complain, but it'll be just like when people complain at school and people complain at work, you still show up. I tell people decision makers don't care about your complaint if you're going to be there tomorrow, regardless. What is the solution to empower change? Of course, it has to start from deep self-reflective work. We have to take responsibility for where we're at and Mm -hmm. how dedicated we are to actually changing the structure from within ourselves before we can start advocating for real structural changes, systemic changes. Mm -hmm. Where does that leave the general public so that they don't feel completely disenfranchised, given that our policymakers are the ones dictating the the rules by which we live. Also, I want individuals to understand how our tax paying and voting shape these policymakers. Mm-hmm. These people do not get an office mysteriously. They get an office from voting, tax paying, including when we're lectured to about not voting or not voting for a particular group of people. Mm -hmm. And especially particular minoritized groups are told that everyone else knows the answer for their lives. So you better vote for so-and-so, right? This is going to keep happening because people think that changes are quick. Yeah. They think that you do one thing. Okay. Now it's time to go back to sleep. Changes are reversed the moment you turn around. Right. So I always tell people who claim they're doing equity work regarding any inequity which they want to address, because we have, as humans, we're horrible. So we have hundreds of thousands of years of inequities to address. So you, people have to just think, what part can they do every day? You know, whatever the case may be, it has to be something small. Because if you think you're going to be doing this profound thing every single moment of the day, you're not going to have a life. You're going to harm your own health. And you're just going to be a miserable person because you're pretending that you're changing the world in your lifetime. So instead, what I explain to people, you do a component at least once a week where you're changing something. And then you have to always say we're leaving foundation of change for every generation after us. Right. Every inequity is going to exist as long as humans exist. And, And I tell people, write it down every week. What have you contributed to this week? to help make changes, Mm -hmm. but not just for your own ego. I don't believe in a such thing as white ally. I don't believe in a such thing as cisgender ally, heterosexual ally. Those tend to be people who want to be celebrated Mm -hmm. instead of demanded for consistency. Right. So I tell people, when you're writing down your list of changes, do not write it down in terms of when you're going to get your next ally button Mm -hmm. or when you're (laughs) going to do an ally training to put in your resume. Instead, write it down because now you're saying you're contributing to the foundation to provide more resources for other people and for future generations to contribute. It's not about you being thanked and celebrated. Yeah. So that's just what I say. Uh, yeah, it, re- it really does come down to the motivation for why you want to make the change. Is it externally motivated or is it internally motivated? Yeah. I mean, it used to be years ago where people would say they wanted to have a meeting with me. And I used to unfortunately do free meetings. And then those people came out with bestseller books and getting paid through trainings. It turned out they were basically taking my expertise. They still don't have my expertise because my work is based in centuries of Black work and Indigenous work before these acronyms like DEI and catchphrases like anti-racism existed. So even when people steal my work and they create their own, I always tell them I'm not offended because I'm a teacher. Mm -hmm. Like my students, they have my lecture notes. They have my lecture videos. The difference though, is that if my students try to copy and paste my knowledge in a lecture and do a entire criminology presentation, they're not equipped for people to ask them questions and to hold them accountable. Of course. Beyond citing a book. 
Yeah. It's easy to, to repeat books that you read, to throw around annotated bibliographies. The knowledge is what you know when you can't read these books. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a lived experience that translates into the work that we're doing. Kimia, thank you so much for such an enlightening session. I have learned so much from this session alone, and I know we've only scratched the surface of the incredible work that you're doing. We are deeply grateful for your presence here and for the work that you're doing in academia and also in equity and justice. Thank you. I appreciate you both. Well, that's it for this edition of the Overpopulation Podcast. Visit populationbalance.org to learn more. To share feedback or guest recommendations, write to us using the contact form on our site or by emailing us at podcast at populationbalance.org. You might also be interested in joining our virtual podcast club, which meets monthly on Saturday over Zoom to discuss the ideas in a previous podcast episode. Learn more by visiting our website. And if you feel inspired by our work, please consider supporting us using the donate button. Until next time, I'm Nandita Bajaj, thanking you for your interest in our work and for all your efforts in sustaining our beautiful, life-giving planet.